Life is complex. And so as the scripture deals with all aspects of life, scripture becomes complex as well. As we read the narratives of scripture, there are many different elements of the narrative that could be studied. And if one is not careful, we can wander our way through these narratives and lose sight of the main path that is intended for us to follow. I often refer to key verses in scripture. And what I mean by key verses when it comes to narrative sections is that these key verses serve as road signs, giving us insight as to what is upcoming as we wind our way through the text. What it is that we are to anticipate, just as one would anticipate a sharp turn ahead as they see a sign to uh, help us navigate the winding road. Well, the key verses, or road signs for our particular text this morning, and again, really, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is found in chapter 18, verses 28 and 29. So we just turn our attention there for a moment. 1 Samuel 18, 28 and 29. It reads, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. That is the main takeaway of the passage of Scripture that we are in this morning. That Saul was David's enemy continually. We're to see this repeated nature of Saul pursuing David. The emphasis is Saul's unrelenting pursuit of David. Even though even though Saul knows that God is with David, even though that Saul knows that God is on David's side, nevertheless, he relentlessly, sinfully, continually pursues David. Now, we might be tempted to look and reflect upon the effect that that relentless pursuit would have upon David And there is a measure of truth to that, and we are going to see that in weeks to come. And we might dwell upon God's faithfulness to David and God's deliverance of David time and time again, which again is true, and again will be focused in ensuing weeks. But the overarching takeaway for this passage, according to verses 28 and 29, is Saul. Saul is the key figure in this narrative. And the emphasis is on Saul's relentless pursuit of David. If you notice verses 28 and 29, it reads, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Saul, Saul, Saul. And Saul's relentless pursuit of David. So the theme for this morning is lessons 
from the relentless and sinful nature of Saul seeking to kill David despite the fact that he knows that God is on David's side, despite the fact that he knows that he is violating the will of God. So this sinful, persistent pursuit of David, even though he knows that it is sinful and going against the will of God. So number one, Saul persists in sin by seeking to kill David despite Jonathan's intervention. Saul brazenly reveals to his servants his desire to kill David. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 19, it reads, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. That they should kill David. There is an advancement, a progression, if you will, in the narrative of Saul's relationship to David. Saul is going to become ever increasingly brazen, ever increasingly more resistant and uh, antithetical to David. And that's going to become extremely apparent. For in verse 1 it says, David spoke to Jonathan his son to all servants that they should kill David. Up until this point, Saul had sought to hide his desire to seek David and to have David killed. And up until this point, now he did throw a spear at David, but the primary means by which uh, Saul is going to seek to have David killed is going to be at the hands of the Philistines. If you notice back in chapter 18, verse 17, the reason that uh, he had promised his daughter Merib to David is so that the Philistines would end up killing David, verse 17 of chapter 18. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now here's the key. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So I don't want to take David's life, but I want to see David killed, so I'm going to use the, the Philistines. And I'll hide behind them. I'll set David up so that the Philistines kill him. Well, that didn't work. Now verse 21 of chapter 18. David in relationship to Michal. Uh, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So he promises Michal to David and wants David to go out and get these foreskins, again with the intent that David's going to die. Well, that doesn't work. So now when you get to chapter 19, no more hiding, no more obscuration of the plan and the plot. Now it becomes fully known. Now he declares. Now he says to Jonathan and to those around him, I want David killed, and you've got to do this. So Saul assembles his servants and Jonathan and solicits their help in killing David. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to his servants that they should kill David. Well, Jonathan warns David in verse 2. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And hide yourself. 
And I will go and stand before my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and I will learn anything I will tell you. Then Jonathan intervened for David and argued against Saul, killing him. Jonathan states that David is innocent of any wrongdoing, verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. He's innocent. He hasn't harmed you in any way. Jonathan states that David is beneficial to Saul at the end of verse 4. And because his deeds have brought good to you. Not only is he innocent, but he has actually helped you. He's been going out. He's been fighting these battles. You're benefiting from this. He is being a help to you. And then lastly... Jonathan states that David is blessed by God. Verse 5. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So now here is Jonathan confronting his father, Saul, and saying to Saul, This is downright sinful. This is wrong in the sight of God. You can't do this. You can't be seeking to kill David. So Saul repents for a period of time. Saul took the advice of Jonathan, verse 6, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul promises to no longer seek to take the life of David. End of verse 6. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Jonathan relays the good news to David, verse 7. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So all is going well for a brief period of time. David returns and continues to minister to Saul, verse 7. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Application. Well, first of all, here we see Jonathan's spirituality on display. Jonathan makes the right choice in defending David. And Jonathan takes the right action in defending David. Namely, he confronts Saul about what Saul intends to do, namely kill David. And in confronting Saul, he uses an argument of reason. He uses an argument of emotion. And he uses an argument of theological truth. Namely, after saying he's been a benefit to you, after saying he's done nothing wrong to you, he says, and for you to do this would be sinful. So he confronts his father concerning Saul's sin. And Saul, being convicted, repents and welcomes David back into his presence. Here we see the senselessness of Saul's action. Persistence in sin never makes sense. And here we also see the reality of momentary repentance, 
which often happens when we talk about persistence and continuance in sin. When we're talking about continually persisting in sin, where it says that he was David's enemy continually, that doesn't mean every single moment of every single day. But it's talking about repetition. It's talking about an ongoing characterization. It's talking about an habitual practice on the part of Saul so that time and time and time and time again, Saul is acting in the same way, committing the same sin, going against the will of God time and time and time again. And we need to be on guard and aware that that pattern can become even manifest in our own lives, where we sin, we repent, we sin, we repent, we sin, we repent, we sin, we repent, and there is a downward progression. That's what we want to see in this passage, why we're looking at so many verses this morning. We want to see these incidences in relationship to each other, that there is going to be a downward progression if when we repent, that that repentance isn't sincere and long-lasting, if it's only momentary. Which brings us to the next point. Saul persists in sin by seeking to kill David despite Michal's intervention. Once again, David meets with success in verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck him with a great blow so that they fled before him. Now that is a trigger or an occasion that once again creates within Saul a desire to see David killed. If you remember, one of the things that is fueling Saul is his jealousy over David. He is jealous over David. He doesn't want to see the kingdom pass to David. He wants to see the kingdom pass to his own son, Jonathan, and he resents the way in which the people looked so favorably upon David and loved David. He was jealous when they said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So here again is this occasion with war coming, David being successful again, that just reignites these jealous fires in the heart of Saul, and he's going to be out to kill David again. Verse 9. God once again brings judgment against Saul. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. We've encountered this harmful spirit of God in two previous occasions in the narratives. So I'm not going to see a, a great deal about it. You can listen to those messages again if, if you don't remember. But I would point out to you that this harmful spirit is in the sense that this is God's judgment upon Saul. This is God actively working against Saul to bring an end to Saul's uh, kingship and replace him with David. Replace him with David. This is God's judgment upon Saul. He doesn't deserve to be king because of the way in which he is acting. And we went back and talked about a few chapters earlier that when it's announced that Saul isn't going to be able to 
remain as king, it's because of his pride. And in his pride, he becomes disobedient to God. And here we see David's, Saul's pride and his disobedience to God. So again, Saul seeks to kill David, verse 10. Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, and he eluded Saul, so he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Now Michal uh, intercedes by warning David, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now Michal intercedes for David by helping him escape, verse 12. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal then buys David some time to get away, verses 13 and 14. Michal took an image, laid it in on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Verse 15, then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, his image was in the bed with his pillow of goat's hair at his head. Then Michal uh, is confronted by her father, Saul. Saul is upset with his daughter for having aided and abetted David's escape. Verse 17, Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go? that he has escaped. So Saul confronts her and says, why did you take David's side over me? Why did you help him? Now, Michal lies and says in verse 17, Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Let me go, why should I kill you? So Saul says, why did you help David escape? Answer, to save my life. You don't understand, Dad. He was going to kill me. I had no choice. I had to help David. Or I'd be dead. I'd be dead. Unlike her brother, Jonathan, she has the wrong response. She lies. She deceives. Uh, She does not confront her father with wrongdoing, but rather seeks to gain his approval by speaking negatively of David. And what we're to see here is that Michal acts consistent with who she is. She acts consistent with who she is. And that is she acts consistently as a unbeliever, as a person who doesn't worship the true and living God. Michal is not a believer. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 13, it says when uh, she's hiding the fact that David has fled, verse 13, Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and observed 
covered it with clothes. The image, that Hebrew word for image, refers to a very specific household idol, a very common idol that existed among the people. It was an idol that was in the shape of a human form. That's why it proved to be such a good and deceptive way to try to make it look like David was in the bed. When he wasn't in the bed, it was this idol. But my point to you is that there was an idol in this house. That there was false worship that was taking place. And I can guarantee you it wasn't David's idol that was in that house. It was Michal's idol that was in that house. And when she's defending David, it's not for the glory of God. And when she's defending David, it's not because of a righteous motivation. She's defending David simply because she loves him. She loves him, and that's commendable. But all I'm pointing out to you is that she's acting consistent with her unbelief. We shouldn't be surprised that she's lying. We shouldn't be surprised that she is deceiving. And what also I want you to note is the difference in the effect that this has upon Saul. When Jonathan confronted Saul, momentarily he repented. Granted, it was momentary, but nonetheless, momentarily he repented. But when Michal is going to intervene for David, there is no momentary repentance here because he's not confronted with his sin. In fact, what she does, in essence, is feed her father's hatred for David. She just gives him one more reason why he should be mad at David, namely because David was about to kill his daughter. This David is a bad guy in the mind of Saul, and Michal just feeds that. Now, why do I point that out? Well, because... of the persistent nature of sinfulness. The persistent nature of sinfulness. Just a couple of ideas here. Number one, one might wonder how in two different, in the same family, you could have two such different children. How could Jonathan and Mikhail be such, so different in their spiritual relationship to God? They are the product of Saul, the the same father. Well, I would submit to you, I would submit to you that though they have the same father, they didn't really have the same upbringing. We know that Jonathan is much older than Michal. And we also know that in Saul's early years, Saul was very devoted to God. In his latter years, he was not. And I believe there's a direct relationship between Saul's 
own walk with the Lord and the effect that it had upon his children. The benefit of Jonathan being brought up in a home when his, parent, his father was ardent in his relationship to God, and Michal, when she was brought up and was not ardent by any means in a relationship to the Lord. I can know this even in my own life and regrettably in my own family. My brother didn't have the same interest in spiritual things when he was young that I had when I was young. And people might wonder, how can that be? They grew up in the same home, they had the same parents. Yeah, but it wasn't the same circumstances. My dad was not the same when my brother was young as he was when I was young. We're nine years apart. And my dad got his act together. Not that my dad was, was exceedingly sinful by any means. He, he was a believer and he, he knew the Lord. But my dad got caught up in, in farming and got caught up in not going to church. He had work to do. He had different things. He just had a different set of priorities. Just a different set of priorities. When I was growing up, he changed. He changed. I'm telling you, it's important to recognize that people change. And we need to be on guard so that in our downward progression of sinfulness, that we don't create a different atmosphere in our homes. That there isn't the steadfastness that there once was. That there isn't a love for the things of God that there once was. It had consequences for Saul, had consequences for David, had consequences for Michal, and it was going to have consequences for the nation. So persistence in sin proves to be harmful to one's family. It's going to have a negative effect. Thirdly, Saul consists in sin by seeking to kill David despite the Holy Spirit's repeated intervention. Saul seeks to, to sin by killing David despite the Holy Spirit's repeated intervention. Starting at verse 18, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel in Ramah and told him all that Samuel had done to him, excuse me, all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. Now Nioth, according to J. Robert Benoit, I quote, says this, Naoth was an area of dwellings. Apparently, it was housing that was established for the prophets who were ministering and training under Samuel, end quote. So this is not a place. They're at Ramah, but it's a section of the city. It's a section of Ramah where there were these dwellings, dormitories-like, if you will, where the, the prophets were living, and they're being trained by Samuel, so that's where David is going to be hiding out. And God's Spirit intervenes on behalf of David when messengers are sent to uh, this place in order to have David arrested. Verse 19. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. 
That is, they were praising God. They were exalting and lifting up the name of God. And as a result, they are unwilling to arrest David. God so intervenes that he prevents them from any desire to see David killed. Well, Saul responds when those messengers come back without David by hardening his heart and sending another contingent to take David with the same outcome. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So that didn't work. So what does he do? Saul sends a third contingent to arrest David with the same outcome. The end of verse 21. And Saul sent messengers again the third time. They also prophesied. They also returned home. They're also without David. Time and time and time again, Saul sees the Spirit of God at work, definitively, definitively. Now we're not just seeing people's intervention. Now we're not just seeing the the deceit of Mikhail. Now we're seeing the almighty, holy God changing the hearts of the messengers of Saul so that they fear God more than they fear the king. And they're not going to do the king's bidding. So what does Saul do, having three times been thwarted by the power of God and seeing God come to the defense of David? What does he do? Well, finally, Saul himself goes to arrest David with the same outcome. It's the old, if you want to have a job done right, then do it yourself. Saul realizes this is pretty futile sending these messengers. I tried that three times. But instead of relenting, instead of repenting, instead of bowing before the will of God, verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And now this incredible narration. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, upon Saul. And he went. He prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. So Saul goes himself thinking that he will be successful in arresting David. Saul has a greater determination and interest in the matter of seeing David killed than his messengers, to be sure. So David say, Saul says, that's not working. <laughs> I'm not going to send these messengers anymore. I'm going to go and I'm going to kill David. But that's not what happens. God intervenes. And God humbles Saul. And he humbles Saul in two ways. First, Saul is humbled by God and being thwarted in his efforts. He too would be unable to arrest David, verse 24. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel. Just like those messengers that had gone before. 
And secondly, Saul was humbled by God in lying naked, stripped of his kingly garments, and brought to shame in his nakedness. Look at verse 24. And he, he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Nude. Lying on the ground. Humbled by God. Stripped of his kingly garments. Unable to take David. Here we see the clearest example of Saul persisting in sin, seeking to kill David. There is no question at this point that God is intervening on David's behalf. There is no question in the heart and mind of Saul what is the right thing to do. He's even brought so low as to be giving praise and honor to God. He's prophesying. He's declaring God's goodness and righteousness. And yet we're going to see in the very next chapter that he's out pursuing David again. Application. Here we see Saul's repeated resistance to the will of God. Four times in this last section alone, Saul rejects what is made clear by God's Holy Spirit. Each act becomes more and more brazen, more and more willful, and increasing defiance. Here is a great theological lesson to us all. First, the hardness of a heart that refuses to repent. A hardness of a heart that refuses to repent. It's a fearful thing when people know what is the right thing to do and they refuse to do it. When they know that an action that they're entering into is a violation of God wants for them, of how God wants them to live. But they choose to live outside the will of God. They choose to go against God nonetheless. That only gets worse and worse. That only proves to be more and more brazen, more and more harmful to the individual and to those around them. But here is a great theological lesson to us all. Though Saul persists in disobedience to God, God's will is not thwarted. David is not captured. David's life is not taken by Saul. God will not be conquered. God is indeed at work. He's at work in David's life. He's at work in Saul's life. He's at work in Jonathan's life. He's at work in Michal's life. He's at work in the messengers of Saul's lives. He's at work in the prophets. He's at work in Samuel. And he's at work in the nation of the children of Israel. God is at work. And God's will will be done. We should not lose sight of the difficulty that it brought to the life of David, and we'll see that in weeks to come. 
We are to be marveling at David's patience and the way in which he is willing to wait for God to work. Just imagine how trying it is for David has escaped death at least eight times by now. At least eight times. We're to see how merciful and gracious and long-suffering God is. What rope he gives Saul. It's amazing to me. Because we're not even close to the end yet of the episodes of Saul and David. How long God is merciful to Saul. Don't ever equate God's mercy with God's forgiveness. Never think that just because you're getting away with it, it means that everything's okay. Just because I continue on this road to sin, even though I've been persistent, even though I've been doing what I know I shouldn't be doing over and over and over again, and it seems that I'm getting away with it. Now he's being frustrated. He's not getting David killed, but there doesn't seem to be any consequence. There doesn't seem to be any negative effect that this is having upon Saul. even though he's raising his fist to God and refusing to do what God wants. It seems as though God is impotent. It seems as though God can't take care, that God can't bring about justice or holiness or righteousness. But you see, nothing could be further than the truth. For here we have this direct intervention of God simply to show his power. Simply to demonstrate that Saul is under God's authority. Which brings us to this next great theological lesson, and that is God is able to humble the proud and the disobedient. God is able to humble the proud and disobedient. I was going to go into a lengthy depiction of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't have time this morning, so I will just give you the conclusion. I hope you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, that king of Babylon, who in his pride was removed from the kingship and made to eat grass like, a, like an animal. And at the end of that escapade, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, it says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This proud soul is going to be laying naked on the ground before God. He's able to humble the proud. Here is a foreshadowing of future judgment. For all those people that think they're getting away with being disobedient to God in dishonoring him, to living for their own glory, for their own pleasure, and not submitting themselves to the will of God, 
we read these words in the book of Philippians, referring to Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, one day, every single knee will bow. One day, all those who in defiance raise their fist towards God is going to be humbled. And they're going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No matter how obstinate no matter how rebellious they have been in this life, no matter how it may seem as though they're getting away with it, they're going to be humbled. So in conclusion, what are we to learn? Well, first we're to see the willful, persistent disobedience to the will of God. One might think that Saul would have given up pursuing David. You would think that he would have seen the futility of it all. At some point, you would think that it would dawn upon Saul that I'm never going to be able to kill David. That he'd be afraid of defying God. For in those key verses that we talked about in the very beginning, it says, when he saw that the Lord was with David... When he saw that the Lord was with David, he became his enemy continually. The point is he saw, he saw, he saw, he knew. It should be sobering and scaring to us all when we know what is right and we persistently refuse to do what is right. When we're convicted, we read a message, we hear a message, we read the scriptures, the Spirit of God deals with us, and we know that there's something that God wants us to change in our lives, and maybe momentarily we do, want to go, to go right back to it again, and repent and want to go back to it again. And as a result, become more and more brazen, more and more confident, less and less fearful of God, more sure that we're getting away with it, more convinced that there's going to be no consequence to our sin. Be on guard. Be on guard. It's a bad path to walk down, it's destructive to ourselves, it's destructive to our families. It's destructive to others, and it's destructive to our nation. There is no question that Saul knows what he's doing is wrong. He simply does not care. He doesn't care what it means for Michael. And we're going to see that later on. These consequences to our action, there's two very significant ones, and we'll see that in months to come. But he doesn't care about 
her. He doesn't care about Jonathan. He doesn't care about David. He only cares about himself. That's what persistent sin does. It makes us insensitive to how our sin is affecting others and only see it in light of what we perceive as injustices and the wrong that we're experiencing. But there will be a day of reckoning. And there is a great price for persistent disobedience to God. It's a sad, sad passage, but an incredibly powerful one. Think that God himself intervenes four times, four times, in preventing David from being captured is God causes people to declare his praise, speak of his justice, and humbles them before God. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would strive with us that we would be a people who trust and yield to you. Lord, uh, I pray if any of us this morning are living in persistent sin, though we know what your will is, though we know what you would desire us to do, and though you have given us escape time and time again, it's like we're heading down a roadway and we just refuse the off-ramps. We, we just refuse to, to depart from the way in which we are going. Lord, may we not take for granted your grace and your mercy, your, your, the fact that you are long-suffering and patient with us. Perhaps years Lord, work in our hearts. Humble us before you. Give us a desire to to glorify your name. Give us an awareness. Open our hearts and minds and eyes to see what this is doing to others, to our family, to our friends, to our church, but most importantly to your honor and glory. Oh Lord, preserve us from a dreadful end. But grant us repentance. Grant us a renewed love for the things of God. A desire to walk before you in righteousness and holiness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.